Well, welcome, guys, once again. This is Resonate. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. Um, and we are in the middle of a series called Broken Colors. And just a quick rundown on what broken color means and what that is. Um, do we have that slide, David, of the, uh, of the broken color painting? Bingo. So this is a painting in the style of broken color. It's a technique that's used that basically each brush stroke is not actually connected but our brains will visualize this and look at it and put together a cohesive image. So it's using different brush strokes of every different color and kind to tell one story. So what we're doing is we're using the lectionary, which is a real old nerdy Bible book that gets you through the Bible in about three years time because everybody wants to take three years and go through the entire Bible. Um, we are not taking three years, we're just gonna do this for one series, but we're following along with it, which puts us in a crazy traditional spot. Um, if you go to any Anglican church, most mainline churches, if you were to walk in right now, they'd probably be preaching on the same text that we're doing here, which is kind of cool. We're just joining in the larger story. But we're using the lectionary texts, which are four texts a week, and they come from all over the Bible, from Old Testament to New Testament. And basically, we're using them like the brushstrokes to paint a cohesive image. Uh, and on top of that, because we're at Resonate and we want to do something really risky, we decided we would go along with whatever's in the news that week. So whatever happens in the news in the week dictates what I write a sermon on, and uh, we've had some doozies of a week. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, rules this morning, uh, how to break them, what they're for, um, and we will get to this photo. Uh, David, do we have? Yes. I promise you we're going to talk about rules, and we're going to end with this, and I'm going to keep my job, and everyone's going to be cool. Uh, so... <laughs> We will end with that, but let's pray as we get into rules this morning. Amen. <laughs> no kidding. Lord, thank you uh, just for this space, um, for the ability to talk about what matters most, and, uh, and I just pray for our time as we jump into that. Amen. So if we're going to talk about rules, uh, we need to talk about uh, board games, because obviously that's the first place to start. Now, I don't know if you grew up playing board games or not. Board games were a big deal in my household on Friday nights. Family bring out the board games. Uh, and here's the thing. Family of five, uh, missionaries' family, pastor's family, not a lot of money, small quarters, always shared a bedroom with my brother. Uh, we had no more than two bathrooms at any given time. So no matter what house, we moved all over the place, but we never had more than two bathrooms. And so it just creates this sort of subtle, under-the-rug, like, rage against each other, right? There's just, like, this subtle stuff of, like, oh, I need to get in that bed. I got to shower. What are you doing? What are you, how did you do that? Like, just there's a lot of tension going on. And what would happen is when you bring out a board game, all of that tension gets released in like a three-hour session. It's just like, like the gloves come off. My sister's favorite game uh, was this. It was Sorry. You guys remember this game? Um, now, the actual tagline, it, now it's called The Game of Sweet Revenge. In the 90s when I was playing it, it was called I Get You, You Get Me Back. So the whole point of this game is vengeance, right? It's, it's absolute vengeance. And that violence that you see of the little plastic things just smacking into each other was precisely the anger in which my sister would knock our pieces off of the table. And interesting note, if you were winning and she didn't like that, she would claim you're cheating, and then she would throw the board over. Now, this is just therapy for me, but you can see Sorry is a vengeful, vengeful game. My sister now works in politics. Go figure. So my favorite game, however, uh, was a little more nuanced, a little more subtle, a little more evil, and it's called Monopoly. Monopoly, we've all played it, uh, is a game of real estate and capitalism, and man, does it make a family furious at each other. Uh, Monopoly, as it turns out, uh, I thought that like, this might resonate with you as a game that might cause some uh, drama, but I actually looked it up. A simple Google search got me this guy. Can we lower the lights just a little? There we go. Um, Monopoly is the most controversial game ever made, and it causes the most conflict, period. Uh, this is a, a survey they did with a 1,000 board game enthusiasts in America, 
And 47.7% of people who have played Monopoly have gotten in a fight that ended a relationship. 47.7% of people that play this game. Quick note, Monopoly has been played on space, it's been played on the moon, and it's been played in a nuclear submarine. Why you would put someone playing Monopoly in a nuclear submarine, I have no idea. Bad combination. But basically, <clears throat> this is the stats, this is the roll down. The one that comes closest to it is Scrabble, and that's only at 18.5%. There is a huge waft there, right? And the problem with this game is the reason there's so much tension is because this. Even Hasbro, who Parker Brothers uh, sold the game to Hasbro a couple years ago, Hasbro admits that only about 70% of the people who play Monopoly have ever opened the rule book. And this is so true when you think about it, how did you learn how to play Monopoly? You didn't crack the rule book, right? An older brother, older sibling, someone taught you how to play and you took their word as Bible, right? This is how we play. And so whenever you play with someone else for the first time, there's this tension of like, well, what do you do with free parking? What do you do with this, right? How do you deal with that? And in 2014, uh, Hasbro got wise to this and said, we've got to do something about this uh, because everybody has their own rules and we need to like, lock it down official. Now, they have official rules. Those are there. Over 70% of us have never looked at them, but they are indeed there. But Hasbro decided what better way to fix the rules than to make more rules. So on their Facebook page, they put a voting system in which you could vote for what they called house rules. And house rules would come in the board game, still do, uh, along with the official rules. So now there are two rule books, because what better way to solve a problem of people not wanting to read the rule book than to add another rule book, right? There, so now there's two. On top of that, there's a Monopoly app that has its own set of rules, because in the digital edition, you need different rules for different things. There are so many rules with this game, it's out of control. And we all have our own way of doing things. Now the point I'm trying to make here is that we're a little bit obsessed with these rules, right? Rules are what makes the game fun. Without them, what, what are we doing? We're just rolling dice, right? But with them comes a lot of negative consequences, especially if we don't understand what's actually in there. Here's the deal. I don't think most of us have truly cracked open the Constitution lately or anything like that to look at what's really going on and what the real rules are. Are. We simply kind of know in our heart, we're like, no, that's, that's true, this is not. And what we found out in the last couple of years, especially with social media and everything, what's true is really different for everybody, right? We live in a narrative right now that what wins is true. And that's very, very dangerous because when we look at the Bible and the biblical path, the biblical narrative and the story of Jesus, he doesn't win a lot, <laughs> right? We are following a savior who is defined more by his losses than his wins. That's a big, big deal. So we look at the rules, and especially the Bible is full of them. Crack it open to Leviticus, and I'll see you in like a year and a half. It's just rule after rule after rule after rule. So by the time Jesus gets along, we see him in the Gospels breaking all sorts of rules and creating a new system that often goes for the person's heart rather than the existing law. And he crosses boundary lines, things that are written in the text to go, no, 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 it's about the heart of it all. Rules, uh, St. Benedict talks about this, rules, like the root of the word rule in Latin is trellis, the same word that you would use, like a trellis, what you would use for a vine, for uh, grapes and stuff. So if you're, if you're growing a vineyard, which most of us are during the week, you would take the vine, because a vine will grow on anything that it attaches itself to. 
It's a really unique kind of plant. So if you plant a vine and you plant it against the wall, it's going to start crawling up the wall, and it will just scale all over the place. It will take the thing over. Right? So what we discovered very early on in human history is if we can bound this to something, we can guide it, and it will grow in the right direction. So that trellis idea, our idea for rules and laws and all this stuff, is that if it's not helping us grow, then what's the point? If a law or a rule is not helping you grow, it's time to reorient and it's time to look at that law in a different way, in a very unique and different way. And we've been obsessed with these rules from the very beginning of scripture. Check this out. This is in the Bible, very first book called Genesis. Um, do we have that, David? There we go. Uh, this is right after Adam and Eve have famously eaten their forbidden fruit um, and all hell breaks loose. Here it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And I always say this and mention this, but that to me just sounds like Jesus is wearing a robe or God's wearing a robe and just sauntering through the cool of day, right? And they hid from, uh, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord called to the man, Where are you? Now, hold on to that for one second. Where are you is the very first question that God asks in all of scripture. Where are you? And he follows it up uh, with this. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to eat from? So the first two questions that God asks us in scripture are, where are you? And then literally, who told you that? And it's a, this, this set of questions, the defining set of questions in the biblical narrative that moves forward, and the questions that he's still asking us today. Where are you, and who told you that? Now, this is what's known as like the, the very first sin in the Bible, right? It's a beautiful narrative and poem, um, but it's the very first sin. And look what happens the very first time we actually break a real rule. The only rule that God gave them in that garden was just you can do anything you want, you can eat of any tree you want, just not this one. And they deliberately do it, and they go for it. And so they broke the only rule that there was. And what was their response once they broke the rule? We need to make more rules, right? From now on, we're, oh, we're naked. Let's get, let's get clothed so we won't be in shame. And that way, if we create more rules that we're actually abiding to, we're one step further down the path to being right with God again. More rules. And this creates a whole litany of things in Scripture. From here, we just get rules and rules and rules and rules and rules because it's better to have more little rules so that we can't get to the cardinal big things. But the problem is, then those little rules became way, way too important to everyone. The rabbis had this, uh, this system when they were speaking or when they were setting up their law. And the Pharisees had it, and the Sadducees had it, and the Essenes had it. Those were the three sort of camps at Judaism in the time. And they called it fencing in the Torah. So basically what this means is it's all the laws that would prevent you from breaking the really big stuff. So on the Sabbath, which is a day that you keep completely holy, you're not allowed to work whatsoever, they came up with all of these sort of laws that would keep you from even getting to the point where you could work. You're not allowed to pick up a tool on the Sabbath lest you be tempted to work on the Sabbath. So that picking up a tool is fencing in Torah. It's keeping a fence around it. The same way that if we had small children or something, we would put a fence near a highway. Right? Don't cross this boundary line because that only leads to this. And for a while, that's immensely helpful because it does keep us. We should sweat the small stuff. That's great. But the problem is, by the time Jesus rolls around, there are those three camps, and they're all taking these rules way too seriously. 
And it all stems from this. So way back in the Old Testament, before Jesus comes along, you have uh, two guys named Ezra and Nehemiah. We've talked about them in here before. But Ezra and Nehemiah get this call from God to go back after the Jews have been in exile for 50 years, to go back to the holy city and rebuild the temple. Now, here's the crazy part. Nowhere in Scripture did God actually ask Ezra and Nehemiah to come back and go build the temple. They came up with that on their own. <laughs> and they told everyone, we have been sent to come build this temple. But there's no instance of God audibly talking and saying, you should build this temple. And once they do build the temple, the first temple was glorious. When Solomon built this temple, the Bible describes just all of this fire and this glory and this crazy outpour of God's glory once the temple is completed. And when Ezra and Nehemiah finish this temple, they nail in that last stone and they wait and they wait and they wait and no glory, no fire, no nothing. And this presents a very large problem for them because they have just built this massive temple and used massive amounts of resources and they've pulled in day laborers and they've done the whole spiel and now this whole community that's coming back in to Jerusalem from exile is going to look at them and say you must have done this wrong because there's no glory and there's no fire and there's no presence of God. So from here the Jewish people begin to look at, it, at their selves and at their religious practices and say we must be doing it wrong because there's no glory. We have a glory shortage, a glory problem, right? We got to get this fixed. And if we can just live a certain way and abide by these rules and like just keep going on the legalistic path, maybe that glory will return. So we give the Pharisees like an enormously bad name in churches when we talk about them. And when we read the gospel, they kind of look like the nemesis. And they are. They end up like literally putting Jesus to death. But here's the deal. No one had more in common with Jesus than the Pharisees did. And that's a shocker, but the Essenes and the Sadducees, which were the other two camps, they had things really, really crazy down the path. The Pharisees are actually the only ones that believed in an afterlife. They're the only ones that had a hope for the Messiah, for someone who would come. They, they were the only ones that could have recognized Jesus. The Essenes made the Pharisees look like a bunch of hippies. They said, you guys are doing this all wrong. You're not right. It's only the written law of Torah, and we're going to leave the holy city because there's no glory here, and you're the, you're the problem. You're messing it up. So we're going to go live a monastic life way out in the countryside. Um, and thanks to them, we have what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. But they go way out there and just practice strict dietary laws, celibacy, and legalism, legalism, legalism. The Pharisees look like these mystic weirdos compared to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And so when we look at this story, we have to actually go like, Jesus is always interacting with the Pharisees, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they really didn't know what to do with him. They were like, I, th I dig a little bit of what this guy's saying, but I don't, I, he can't go that far, and he can't do that. He's breaking laws. He can't be breaking laws. And so at the end, we all know how that turns out. What that brings us uh, to, our, to our lectionary scripture this morning. Um, this is an interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees, uh, and basically this is, this is what goes down. This is on the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through uh, the grain fields, and his disciples walked along, and they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of, I'm not even going to try that, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat, and he gave some of it to his companions. Then he said to them, 
The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So what's super, super interesting here is that he's talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, those three camps, each had what they called their own version of fencing in Torah, and that was called their halakha, halakha. Basically, what that meant is the path that you walk. That's how that literally is translated, the path that one walks down. Each one of them had this, and Jesus had his own, his own way of legalizing, and this is the things that we believe, your halakha. And then they would have something called a haggadah, and that was the stories that that particular camp would use to explain their laws and their rituals. And so what Jesus does in this passage is this beautiful theological ninja move where not only does he present his halakha because they are walking down a path through a field, getting grain and eating, which is unlawful on the Sabbath, he's saying nothing can stop us from keeping to walk down this path. But then he also tells them a story, a haggadah, a story in their own tradition to help them understand what he's doing right there, right now. And then he takes it even a step further in the next passage, and he heals someone on the Sabbath. And then right after that, we get the first instance of the Pharisees saying, we have to put him to death. He's got to go. He's breaking too many rules. He's moving too fast, too quickly. It's hurting people. Jesus keeps going too far. And so he gets this reputation. The Pharisees start talking about Jesus like he doesn't know what he's doing, and he's taking the laws way too lightly. He's playing loosey-goosey. He's not being orthodox. He's not sticking to the written scriptures. And I truly believe, right after this, we have the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most famous sermon that Jesus gives, the most red letters in the text, the most we actually get to see Jesus talking. I truly believe that that sermon is in direct like, competition with that idea. That Jesus is saying in this sermon that, no, 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 I have not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. In fact, he says, do we have that um, scripture, dude? Yeah, do not think, this is how he opens up the whole Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, what Jesus is saying here in the, the abolish word, that literally means interpret. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, the, um, where is it? Oh, fulfill, that literally means to interpret. So I've not come to do away with it. I've just come to interpret it right. And then he launches into the Sermon on the Mount, which includes six, you've heard it this way, but I tell you this statements, in which he doubles down even further than the Essenes and the Sadducees in terms of how seriously he takes this law. He says, you've heard it say, don't murder. Well, I'm going to tell you that if, even if you're angry at someone, even if you call someone a fool, same deal. Right? And he's going way farther. And the Pharisees are seeing this, and they're going, oh, my gosh, he's fencing this in like crazy. Adultery, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you that if you even look at someone in that way, it's the same deal. Right? But what Jesus is actually doing is not trying to create more rules and more laws. What he's doing is he's showing everyone how, just how far and just how ridiculous that can get. That if we keep going and going and going and going and going, what you're going to do is you're just going to come back around to the heart of it all. You're going to find that if you keep creating these little, little rules and everything and everything and everything, there's, it's never ending and you're just going to keep going in circles. Rather, it's what here that matters. It's the heart of the law, the heart of the issue. It's not just murder. It's, it's what's going on inside of you 
It's not just adultery, it's what's going on right here. We need to start paying more attention to right here than the actions that we're doing out here. This is what matters most to Jesus. And he's trying to tell them, he's pleading with them, guys, I get it, but these laws were made for you. You weren't made for them. You're not made for these rules. A lot of these rules, we just simply made up. They were designed and they were helpful at a certain point, but now they're no longer a helpful trellis. We can't grow any further, and now we need something else to keep us going. When you break the rules, you're not out of my kingdom. In fact, when you break the rules, you're actually going to get a better idea of what my kingdom looks like. We see that in stories like the prodigal son. We see it in redemption all over the place, and probably no bigger uh, than at the end of the scriptures, at the end of the gospels, when Peter breaks the rules, and he denies Jesus three times, and all Jesus does when he comes back, and Peter is just ashamed, and he's, he's got that guilt, and we all know what that feels like, that shame, that guilt, that awful pit in your stomach feeling, and he just goes, Lord, I'm so sorry. And Jesus just looks at Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yeah. He says, well, feed my sheep. And then he repeats that three times, the number of times that Peter denied him. So the answer from Jesus when we break the rules is not, oh, okay, three Hail Marys, all this kind of stuff, go do this, go do this, and then you're better. No, the answer is just, no, stop worrying about that. Keep going. Keep caring for other people. Feed my sheep. If you love me, that's what that love is going to look like. Feed my sheep. And that kind of revolutionary idea in Christianity and in churches has caused great amounts of imagination. How can we creatively feed God's sheep? It's resulted in hospitals, it's resulted in schools, it's resulted in nonprofits, all sorts of awesome stuff. But here's the deal. I think with the decline of evangelical Christianity, all that good stuff, I think one of the major reasons for that decline is that we've stopped using our creativity and our imagination in terms of what this story and what this God can truly do in people's lives. When we start getting creative again, we start using our imagination, we start setting up trellises really where we can actually grow and it's actually helpful, then we're on to something. Let me show you what this looks like. Um, my, uh, my buddy in Philadelphia um, started a group called Red Rooster Soup. Uh, and Red Rooster Soup basically uh, what they did was there's a really famous uh, restaurant in Philadelphia called Federal Donuts, and they make all they make is fried chicken and donuts. It's a wonderful concept. Um, that's all they make. And they came to uh, Broad Street Ministries, which is the church my buddy was involved in, and they said, hey, we want to help you guys. And basically, this church is a giant Presbyterian church that has maybe 40 people going to it on Sunday, but they serve thousands of people experiencing homelessness throughout the week. It's just this crazy world they have. And they're not just like a soup kitchen. It's not just that you go in there and they soup. They literally have a host. And when the person walks in, that host will take their bags, take their coat, everything like that. They'll guide them to their table. And then there's a menu placed in front of them. And it's a three-course meal. And they serve thousands of these a week. And so Federal Donuts heard about this idea, this radical hospitality idea, and they're like, we want in on that. Can we give you chicken soup? And we've got all of this leftover chicken stuff. We can make it into chicken stock, and we can give you chicken soup. And my friend at the ministry was like, hey, honestly, thank you for that, but we don't actually serve soup here because it's not a soup kitchen, um, so we don't need your soup. And, and that's a really interesting thing for a nonprofit to do. It's like the, a really successful restaurant in town wants something, and they're like, no, actually, your, your heart's not exactly in the right place. We don't, we don't want your soup. 
But, he said, we could do this. And what they discovered is that if they could brand that soup as red rooster soup, sell it in the federal donut store, and 100% of the proceeds would go back into Broad Street Ministries. And not only that, but then grocery stores caught on to this, and they said, we want some of this soup. And so they got into local grocery store chains, and now they're in national grocery store chains, and they're serving the soup, and people are buying it, and 100% of the proceeds go back to Broad Street Ministries. See, that's crazy imagination. That's breaking rules, right? That's not the way this is supposed to be done. You're just supposed to say yes to the soup, right? No, let's get creative with things. Let's move it forward. On top of that, that became so successful, they decided, Federal Donuts said, why don't we just open a restaurant right next door and call it Red Rooster Soup? And they did it, and it's a diner, and you can come in, and it employs the same people who eat at Broad Street Ministries during the week, and on top of that, provides housing, health care, all of these benefits for these people who are working inside Red Rooster Soup, which is a really successful diner right next to Federal Donuts. That's radical imagination and beauty inside the Christian tradition. And we need more explosive ideas like that. And here's the thing. I don't have those ideas. I'm not that kind of person. I just don't have that bend. I, I do church stuff, <laughs> right? But you guys have those ideas. What the church should really stand for is this should be like an amplifier, where it takes one small signal and makes a giant noise with it. What we forget is how powerful we are when we're together. I think the greatest trick that the devil could pull is the fact that we think we just come in here and we sing songs together, we hang out, we have a donut, and we go home. The truth is, if the church recognized how interconnected and how beautifully connected we all were, we could do crazy things, even in a small-scale church like this. We have the ability to literally mobilize and do stuff and we can do that quicker than even a large church can do. It's really, really fun. Like, for instance, um, way, way back on our, our second, we just, we had launched the church, and I realized, oh, wow, it was like our launch service. I was like, I didn't really, I didn't have anything to invite people back to. Like, we got to have something to tell them, like, oh, I mean, and come this week because you experienced the launch, and that's awesome, but, like, come back here. And I had nothing, and I realized it, and I panicked in the last song, and then I went, oh, Someone earlier that week had thrown out the idea that we should watch Stranger Things together and do a theology of Stranger Things and that I should wear a Stranger Things costume the entire time I preach. And I said, that's a ridiculous idea. It will never work. And then in that song, I went, but it might work for us. And so I got up here right after that and said, hey, by the way, next week, we're going to do a whole theology of Stranger Things. And then we just did it. Like, we flipped it all around. We decorated this whole place, and we did that within a week. Now, that's self-serving. That's for us. That's arrows in, right? But we can use that same kind of mobility to change what's going on outside this space and in our community. So here's the thing. If you have fun ideas, if you want to start something, the beauty of a small church environment is you're on it, <laughs> right? If you have that stuff, but we're here to support you, to encourage you, and man, do we need that kind of help in this city. The number of people experiencing homelessness in this city is on the rise in a fierce way, in a fierce way. And we can't stop ignoring that. We have to actively engage with what's happening in the community. So if I'm talking right now and it's sparking some sort of idea, come talk to me about it. I would love to know how we can encourage you and how we can build a system or a ministry around that. So we need more of these ideas. Because if you're in this space and you're sitting here, we have a certain degree of freedom 
and a privilege that not a lot of people have. And that freedom, I think like, there's a responsibility element to freedom. Like, if you have freedom, you're actually called to some sort of greater responsibility. And responsibility is a, is, a, is a very harsh word. We don't like to hear that word. But what I'm talking about in responsibility is not a blame game. Like, we're constantly looking for the scapegoat, for someone to say, oh, well, he or she is responsible for this. And we need to hold them responsible. I'm looking at it from a totally different angle, which is not a blame game. But are you able to respond? Respond able, responsible. Are you able to respond in the moment? Are you able to do something good? Just the other day, I was walking my little puppy around the block. Um, and we come, we come around the corner, and I see this big, fluffy dog uh, with its leash. And it's just trolling its leash. Uh, and there's no person in sight. And, and, and I had a moment where I was like, oh, darn it, that, this one's on me. So I, I tried to go up near uh, the dog, couldn't get near him. And then another person that had two dogs that looked remarkably similar, I was like, OK, that's probably their dog. But kept an eye on the dogs as going to the street. Not their dog. The dog wanders out into the street. Cars are like stopping. We're honking. We're trying to get out. And everyone around, there's about 10 people at this point, have this unique feeling. We're all looking at each other going, OK, so who's going who's gonna to do this? Who's going to grab the Like, who's going to take responsibility in this situation? And guys, I'm here to tell you, I'm your pastor. It was not me. <laughs> I did not want to deal with this. But there's a certain level of like, no, I, I can't just, I got to step in, right? We all feel that tug when we encounter those kinds of situations. And the reason that we feel that is because as followers of this Jesus way, of this movement, we actually are the people who are able to respond, and we are the ones who should jump in. I told you we were going to end with this photo, um, but I saw this photo this week, and I literally went, what world are we living in? Like, this is, this is, this breaks every rule, <laughs> right? This should not work, but here's the deal. I actually worked for the Kardashian family for a number of years, got to know them uh, very well. And I'm going to tell you this. They're a lot smarter than you all think. <laughs> and what Kim did here was utilize her celebrity and her power to go in and talk to the President of the United States about prison reform. And whatever we think about both of the individuals in this photo, because I promise you a lot of negativity is going to come from either side, we have to do this. This breaks every rule. It does not make sense. And honestly, when I looked at it, I thought I was living in an alternate universe. But it could work because it's just crazy enough. It's just wild enough that it might work. And I think God just smiles when people break the rules in such a way and in such a massive way as this. That he's like, there you go. You're using that creativity. I think a large part of our walk in Christianity, especially in 2018, is that we've written this religious identity off. Uh, we don't give it enough credit. Christianity isn't really known as being the intelligent religion. But when I read stories like of Jesus and the grain and Jesus interacting with people and the parables that he tells, the truth is Jesus was a genius. Just next level genius stuff that's happening. And we are in that tradition. When you walk through the doors of a church, you don't need to check your intelligence at the door. We should run with it. We should create fresh, new ideas. We should create change in this community that we live in. Let's pray together.